I'm John Edwards, lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're listening to an excerpt from Jakob Obrecht's setting of Alma Redemptoris Mater. This piece, which you can listen to complete at the end of this podcast, is in the Anne Boleyn Songbook. And this is part of a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on that collection of music. Deanne Williams, professor in English at York University and Killam Research Fellow, has been working on the Anne Boleyn Songbook and, more generally, on girls as book owners and performers in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, and she and I chatted about some of the performance practice questions thrown up by the book and its contents, and how we answered those questions in performance in her office. What, from a performance practice point of view, does the size and layout of this manuscript tell you? Well, the repertoire uh, seems to be, you would f- the first look at it, the vast majority is would appear to be church music, um, even liturgical church music. It's uh, specific parts that you sing this on this date. Um, uh, the the um, Secret Lilium that we recorded is the antiphon for the assumption, assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and... Um, uh, the uh, uh, Alma Redemptoris we're going to hear is the seasonal antiphon for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, so it would appear to be church music and some of it specifically liturgical. But the manuscript's not very big, as you said in the last episode. It's uh, about 20 by 30 centimeters. Um, so like you say, a large uh, hardback book. And it's in pseudo-score, what's sometimes called pseudo-score layout. So all the parts are on the page. The soprano on the top left, uh, the alto below that, the tenor, and then the bass on the right-hand side. They're not lined up like a modern score would be. And, and those parts are beautifully indicated by historiated initials. And um, yeah, so each one is in the in the in the nice uh, the the more decorative part of it. Church music would be sung by whoever was around, right? What maybe as few as four singers. They could read off one music stand, but in court settings, uh, they'd be a bigger choir. And even in churches where the local confraternity would sponsor masses, they'd be uh, as many as sort of 15 or 20 singers in that size of choir. 15 or 20 singers are not going to be able to crowd around this book when you're using uh, multiple singers on a part. They would co- pay a copyist to copy out the soprano, and the soprano would just get their part. The alto would just get their part uh, copied out one by one. That was the typical, in a bigger choir, typical way to do it. Um, it worked that way for playbooks as well. Yeah, you just get, get you parts. just get your part with a few cues. Uh, Louis uh, the Twelfths uh, uh, at his funeral, the chapel choir was uh, 23 singers. Now, they'd have all hands on deck for a big thing uh, like that. So maybe not all of them would be there every day, but if half of them had the day off, what's that, 12 singers. Uh, Francis I, his successor, 
had uh, 32 singers for the daily liturgy, and that's in about 1517, about the time that this book's uh, around. And it grows to 36. So even presuming that they were on a rota system and not everyone, everyone was there every day, it'd still be multiple singers on a part in big, big churches and in the, cha the royal chapel. And of course, it's got the signature in it. Um, so it's not signed by uh, Jean the uh, tenor. It's not signed by Antoine the bass. It's signed by Anne Boleyn. So it's probably not a church book, though it would seem to be a church church music. But it's in this in this it's now in this different context for this young woman or these women or these women and their friends, their male friends, to sing from in a domestic setting. And a kind of a permanent record of all of the parts together. Yeah, it's in this sort of, uh, it's in this sort of score thing. It's not, uh, it's where you can, it's not a study score, because a study score, it's easier if the parts are lined up, not in this pseudo score um, uh, way. So, but yes, they're all there and they're nice and decorative. Or the, the earlier ones are nice and decorative. There's a chunk that's sort of decorative, and then it slowly gets more. And, and right in the back, there's some secular pieces. While um, many of the musicians I know will have appreciated a drinking song, it's not really going to be of any use to you in your book of church music. So do you envision the book being actually used by, say, four singers uh, working together uh, to do some kind of domestic performance? Well, it's, there's corrections in it. So if, it, if, it, if it's being corrected, somebody said, oh, they've noticed that as they were performing it. It's being, being performed on. That's what we can guess from these corrections. So it, but it's associated with a sort of female household. So... Um, we wanted to try and see if all women could sing some of the motets, uh, some of the pieces in there. And um, we felt, after trying a few out, that we could. That's right. The recordings that we made are sung by women mm -hmm. rather than by mixed voices. So why did you why did you do that, and how did that work? Because of its um, sort of domestic association, uh, its association with Anne and this feminine a court that she's in. We thought we'd tr like to try that out. With this domestic uh, context of it, the lower parts, which are going to be very low for women, don't have to fill a whole church. They need to fill a nice big living room. So you don't need the low, you don't need to have the same bass sound. And we used, uh, at the time, throughout the Renaissance, uh, there's certain clef combinations that mean to transpose down a fourth. There's not just treble clef and bass clef as we use today. Maybe cellists have to learn tenor clef and viola players have to learn alto clef. But there's a whole, there's a clef for every line. So transposition was easier for them. They just learn all of the clefts. They can transpose things very easily. If we, if when we sang the things at the written pitch with women singers, rather than transposing them down when you had a, either a mixed choir or all men for church, we found they could work, especially we used a slightly sharp pitch. We'll come back to that in a second.
Um, so we had them all uh, crowded around when we were doing the recording. They actually each had their own book, but they were standing shoulder to shoulder uh, as you would if you were reading off one music stand. And it, and it worked fine for that domestic acoustic and that domestic uh, context for the pieces. To go back to the pitch, A wasn't always where it is at now. And in the Renaissance, the further back you go, it's harder to decide. Uh, cornetto is a wind instrument. They play at a certain pitch because they're a certain length. Uh, cornettos tend to be sharper than our A. Um, some of the flutes from slightly later tend to be lower. Uh, with lutes, the instruction is tune your top string as high as it will go out without breaking, which sounds ridiculous, but it you feel, you can feel if somebody snuck in and changed the pitch of my lute overnight, either string would break or if they took it down, it would feel floppy to me the next day. Uh, Isabella d'Este writes to her instrument maker around this time, um, make us a lute that is two steps smaller than the last viola you made for us, which we find a little low for our voice. So you'd grab the lute that suited your voice, so you could transpose up that way. And that's what we did with some of the pitches. I entabulated them for a lute that the top string was G, and then I played it on a tiny little lute where the top string was A, or in fact A at A465, so it was even sharper. And so the bass parts sort of move into a range where a real contralto can sing those, a real woman contralto can sing those notes in the bass. And we think it sounded good. Tell us about the piece that we're about to hear, Alma Redemptoris Mater by Jakob Obrecht. How did you decide to perform it in the way that you did? Well, Alma Redemptoris Mater is, as I say, the seasonal antiphon. So you'd sing it uh, in Compline, which was the last service of the day. Or if you weren't going to go on to sing Compline because you wanted to get to bed early, you'd sing uh, sing it at the end of Vespers, which is sort of the evening sundown uh, service, if you were singing it in a liturgical context. But this, uh, this text is... Uh, as we've talked about in the Anne Boleyn songbook, there's a lot of veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary. This text mentions uh, Gabriel and the Annunciation, um, mentions her as the um, uh, the star of the sea and all those things. Uh, so it's, it it's fits in with a lot of the other texts in the a lot of the Marian texts that are in the Anne Boleyn songbook. Now it's. Uh, lowest part i'm going to call it the tenor part has is kind of it starts off with the plain chant that you'd sing in church it starts off with using the um solemn tone the gregorian chant and then it wanders off so that lowest part has some very very long notes in it in a very sort of medieval way which voices couldn't sustain it's also quite low so we had uh, two singers doubling that part. I play it on the lute, so you can hear the pingy beginning of the uh, of the note. And uh, we were joined by a VL player, Eleanor Verrett, who uh, the VL is sort of a violin-sized and shaped instrument that was just about to go out of fashion because they were just inventing the viol and the violin family around this and slightly later. 
So this is our largest ensemble. We have four singers and um, a lute player and a VL player, all sort of crowded around the microphone and the music stand. And uh, you'll hear this uh, veneration of the Blessed Virgin. Let's hear Alma Ridim Torres Mater, set by Jakob Obrecht, sung by the musicians in ordinary, Julia Morrison, soprano, Whitney O'Hearn, mezzo, Catherine Anderson, singing the tenor, with Eleanor Verrett on the VL, and me, John Edwards, playing lute, all led by Hallie Fischel, the other director of MIO, also singing the tenor.